So today we're going to continue in our series, Your Story. And we've been looking at the Bible and the church as a narrative community. Basically, it's a community that only exists because there's a shared story of God at the middle of it. And more than that, we've been looking at the ways that the church has to live out that story in the world, to take God's story and make it our story. And today, we're actually going to talk about one of the most crucial parts of the story that Jesus calls his disciples to get right, and that is forgiveness, reconciliation, and handling conflict in the church. But before we dive into that, I want to talk to you all about the time when I found out I needed glasses. I didn't always need these. In fact, when I was a teenager, I thought they were really lame. I thought nerds wore them. I thought they were kind of annoying. But the thing about needing glasses is that you lose your eyesight gradually and over time. You don't even really realize it's happening. It's a slow process by which suddenly maybe things get a little bit more blurry, and then usually there's a holy crap moment where suddenly you're like, I am blind. <laughs> and that's what happened to me. So I was a senior in high school, and I was the number one art, or arts history student in my class. And I loved art history, and I was really, really good at it. And I was studying for the final exam, the AP exam, and I was hot stuff. I was like, I got this. I'm about to crush this thing. So I show up to the exam, and if you know anything about AP art history, you get into a big auditorium, and they start putting paintings up on a projector. You have to identify them, you have to discuss them, you have to give important information about them, and I was ready to knock this out. So I come in a little late, I end up in the back of the auditorium, the exam starts, and the first painting was something like this, and I saw this. You can't really pass an art history exam if you can't see the art and everything looks like Picasso. And this was a wake-up call, right? I was like, I need glasses. And I went straight to the eye doctor, I got them, and suddenly my entire world changed. Like, for example, did you know that trees have leaves? I thought they were like big pieces of broccoli. I also learned that I can't see road signs as well as I thought I did. That's like the scary, not so funny part. <laughs> but God is good, and I never ran anyone over. <laughs> so I bring this up because I believe that unforgiveness and resentment follows the same process. It's slow. It's gradual. Someone wounds you, and you don't let it go, and over time, it builds up until you can't see the person clearly at all anymore. They're just a blurred image of your resentment and hurt. And I think this is why forgiveness and reconciliation is so central to what Jesus teaches us about what it means to be a disciple and to live in the kingdom of God. See, it appears over and over again in his teachings, and I think it's because Jesus knows some things that we often don't. One, I think he realizes that conflict is part of the human existence. I think we tell ourselves that we can avoid it, but if you've lived in a community or ever been in a relationship with anyone, you know that's not true. He also knows that peace is not the absence of conflict. Rather, peace is a healthy and new way of resolving it. And I think that's what we're going to look at today. 
because we're going to look at what Jesus has to teach us about forgiveness and reconciliation through one of his most famous teachings in the whole Bible, in Matthew 18. We're going to look at a story that he tells about forgiveness, and we're going to read about what he has to say about reconciliation. And I think it's going to open our eyes to why this is such a big deal to him. So we start off, we're just going to jump in. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Should I forgive them as many as seven times? Jesus says, no, Peter, not just seven times, 77 times. So we start with Peter's question. This is actually, we, always, we often lampoon Peter, but this is not a bad question, right? How many times should we forgive someone who keeps hurting us over and over again? What time, when do we say enough? And if you know your Bible, actually what, Jesus, or what Peter says here is actually really quite generous. You see, in the Old Testament, rabbis looked at the text and they said, three is the most that you need. Because after that moment, the person's unrepentant and they're not trying to change. So Peter is actually giving a very generous answer in his worldview. Does Jesus give him a gold star? No. Jesus does the Jesus thing and just goes nuts with it, right? 77 times, which we're like, ugh. Now, I don't think that Jesus is debating math with Peter. I don't think he's saying when you get to 78, you can stop. I think what's going on here is actually way more interesting. You see, if you ever study your Bible, the numbers 7 and 77 are only paired together one other time outside of this text. And it's with a story about a guy named Lamech. Lamech was a bad dude in the Old Testament. Someone came to Lamech in the story, and they injured him. And what does Lamech do? He murders the man. But he doesn't just murder the man, he writes a poem about it. And in this poem, he says, I am Lamech. I responded to my injury with vengeance, not just seven times the vengeance, but 77 times the vengeance. To show how powerful and vengeful he was. In for many Jewish teachers, Lamech became a symbolic figure of what it means to be a human being in terms of the cycle of violence, retaliation, and vengeance that is so much a part of our existence. I mean, just think about it. What is the normal pattern of human life, of our lives? Someone comes to us, they wound us, they wound our family, and how do we respond? We hit back. But we don't just hit back, we hit back with a bigger stick. We seek to escalate and devastate to make sure that they will never do it again. This is what Lamech came to represent in the Jewish tradition, which makes it fascinating that Jesus chooses him as his symbol of what forgiveness in the kingdom of God looks like. So for Jesus, in his mind, how does a disciple of Jesus respond to conflict? He responds like Lamech, the same intensity, seven, seven times the offense, except for he does it with the exact opposite response. The same intensity as Lamech, but in our forgiveness, in our decision to relinquish our right to retaliation, which is pretty radical stuff. If you were Peter, that would have been like a I don't know about that, Jesus. 
And Jesus, as he often does, begins to unpack the weight of this, this new understanding of forgiveness in the kingdom of God with a parable, and which is just a story. It's a metaphorical story that the Jewish people would use to convey big ideas. And for Jesus, it's basically saying, do you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Well, let me tell you, it's like this. And then we are meant to find ourselves in these stories and be stretched by them. So that's the journey we're going to go on today. He starts this story in Matthew 18, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of God is like a king who wanted settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, they brought him a servant who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Because the servant didn't have enough money to pay him back, the master ordered that he should be sold along with his wife and his children and everything he had, and the proceeds should be used as payment. But the servant fell down, kneeled before him, and said, Please be patient with me, and I'll pay you back. The master had compassion on the servant, released him, and forgave him. So just a few observations. The servant owns what we say is 10,000 bags of gold. That could also be translated as the word talent. A talent was an absurd amount of money. For the average day laborer, a talent was 20 years of wages. So in perspective, that means this guy owes his master 200,000 years of debt which is supposed to be absurd. You're supposed to laugh at it if you're in the audience. It's like saying a bajillion dollars, right? So the master comes to collect it, and obviously this man does not have the money, so he goes to throw him into some sort of servitude to work it off, which is a very common practice in the ancient Near East. And how does the servant respond? He says, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. Does he have 200,000 years of life left? He is lying to buy time. He's never going to pay this back, right? And how does the master respond? He forgives it. He shows compassion, which would be a huge deal in the first century because that's not how rich and poor people operated in relationship. He relinquishes his right to punish the man, both for lying and for owing him this much money, and also he relinquishes his right to try to get back what's been owed, which is already pretty cool. The only problem is the story continues, and I think this is where we actually find ourselves in the story more often than not. When the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 coins. He grabbed him around the throat and said, pay me back what you owe me. Then his fellow servant fell down and begged him, be patient with me, and I'll pay you back. The same exact sentence. But he refused. Instead, he threw him into prison until he could pay back his debt. When his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were deeply offended. They came and they told their master all that had happened. His master called the first servant and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you appealed to me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And his master was furious. He handed him over to the guard responsible for punishing prisoners until he had paid the whole debt. And then the scary ending my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if you don't forgive your brother and sister from your heart. So this servant who has been forgiven 200,000 years of debt goes immediately to someone who owes him money. And this is a couple thousand bucks. It's not really a, a small amount, but it's certainly not huge. It's something that the other servant would have been able to pay him back over time. And what does the other servant or what does the unforgiving servant do to this other person in debt? 
the exact same thing in reverse order. The master, when someone came and said, be patient with me, I'll pay you back, showed compassion. When the indebted servant says, be patient with me and I'll pay you back, the unforgiving servant responds in the opposite way now that the shoe is on the other foot. He flies into rage over not being able to get back what he's owed. He attacks the man, he throws him in jail, and the master ends up throwing him in jail. And as a parable, I think this story is used to teach a profound lesson on the nature of unforgiveness and what it does to us as human beings. So we're going to spend some time just unpacking some major themes here. The first thing I would point out is what does the vinyl first say? It says, I'll read it again, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, if you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. So what I would say is, where does forgiveness come from? It comes from our heart. You see, for Jesus, the first thing I would tell you is that unforgiveness and forgiveness is tied in some way to the heart of individuals. In the Bible, you need to understand, though, that the heart was not a metaphor for our emotions and our feelings. The heart was the place where the human will decided. In other words, the heart was the metaphor for where our actions came from, our choices, our decisions, our thoughts about other people. So for Jesus, this isn't about feeling a certain way about someone who's wronged you. It's about a decision. It's about a choice that he is calling his disciples to make that he sees as taking place when we become more forgiving. In other words, I think it's the decision that starts with a change of posture towards the person who's wounded us about what kind of person they are and whether they deserve to be forgiven. It's a choice. How will we see the other person? The second thing I would point out is as a heart issue, as our internal posture towards others, Jesus gets, something at, or gets at something very true, that the root of unforgiveness and resentment begins with our own lack of self-awareness, self-honesty, and humility. It's tied in some way to a broken way of seeing ourselves, and other people. And there's actually a psychological phenomenon that I think gets at this perfectly. It's called the attribution bias. And what this is, is it's a pretty much universal part of being a human being. Psychologists found that human beings are terrible at attributing the cause of actions and blame. What they found is that when it comes to us, we will do one of two things. If it's a positive outcome or decision that we've made, we are more likely to tie the cause of it to our character. We did it because we are good people. I got the job because I am a hard worker. I loved my wife well because I'm a loving person. When it's a negative outcome or action, we do the opposite. We tie it to our circumstances. When I didn't get the job, it's because well, I just didn't have the right circumstances, I didn't have enough help, yada, yada, yada. Or when we hurt people, it's not, I was a jerk, 
It's, well, I had a long day. I was stressed out. My wife said the wrong thing. And bam, I just said it, but that's not who I am. The causes are circumstances. What makes this insidious is that the exact opposite is true when we look at other people's actions. If it is a positive action that another person takes or they succeed, we attribute the cause to their circumstances. Well, that person succeeded because they had all the help along the way. That person, they're not better than me. It's not about their character. They just knew the right people. And what makes it really dark is with a negative action or outcome, it becomes about the person's character. That person didn't succeed because they didn't try hard enough. They're lazy. They should just pull up their bootstraps. Or if they hurt us, it's not because the circumstances were complex, it's because they are bad people. They're not just lying because of the circumstances, they're lying because they are liars. It becomes tied to how we see them as people. And I think this gets at the root of the unforgiving servant's actions. A forgetting of his own forgiven debt exemplified by how he treats others in debt. I mean, just look at it. He can't, with self-honesty and humility, see the truth of what's been done for him because he thinks it's deserved, it wasn't that bad, I'm good character, the circumstances land me, landed me in 200,000 years of debt. Which means that he can't, quite frankly, appreciate it, he can't say thank you, and he also can't be changed by it because it wasn't that big of a deal. And I think this is the heart posture that Jesus is insisting that we need to change to be his disciples. I believe that's because for Jesus, this unforgiving heart isn't just something that impacts us. As the attribution bias shows, it's something that impacts how we see and act in our world. It's something that is so central to being a disciple because when we live in this space of unforgiveness, we can't be changed by our own need for forgiveness. And what happens? We take part in the cycle of escalation, retaliation, and vengeance. We become little Lamex in Jesus' eyes. I mean, just look at it. Look at the unforgiving servant. How does he respond to a smaller debt than his own? He attacks the man and he throws him in jail. Is that going to help him make back that money? Can the other servant work off the debt if he's in prison? No. That's because that's not what he's trying to do anymore. He's not trying to get the debt paid back. He's just trying to hurt the other person for hurting him. He's just trying to injure him for injuring him in the first place. It's just like the story of needing glasses. In this heart posture, the in-person and what they've done becomes blurred beyond their recognition. When we look at them, they stop being a human being and they just become a summation of how wounded we feel. They become, to some degree, just a bad person, which means that we can justify doing anything to them. In this internal space, our goals become a distorted notion of justice, punitive justice. It's no longer about settling the debt the goal is simply to hurt the other person as bad or worse as I was hurt in the first place. Because they deserve it for what they did. 
and the cycle continues and it never stops and everything breaks. And altogether, I think what this parable does an amazing job at doing is highlighting the cost of unforgiveness and resentment. Jesus is hyper aware that this eternal posture of unforgiveness costs us at our soul level. Our unforgiveness becomes resentment. And doesn't our resentment just become a jail that we're thrown into of our own making? And it just costs us so much. The unforgiving servant has access to blessing, to freedom, to a new life, but he can't accept it because he's so preoccupied with what is owed to him in terms of his right to retaliate and get revenge. And he misses out on it entirely, and quite frankly, he and everyone else lose. It actually reminds me of a story from Eastern European tradition that has stuck with me since I first heard it. There was a farmer, and this farmer had been faithful. And an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, because of your faithfulness, I will give you whatever you want. Just name it. And he starts thinking, I could have riches. I could have land. My family members could come back. And the angel says, and because you're such a good man, I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to give double to your neighbor. And he says, without even hesitating, in that case, take my eye. Out of resentment, when blessing comes his way, all he can see is an opportunity to wound double to the one who wronged him. And we can act like we don't identify this or with this, but we do. Don't we do this all the time? Isn't this just so human? I mean, let's humble ourselves and identify with the unforgiving servant for a moment. First, look at our world. What do you see? Pain for pain, wound for wound, eye for an eye. Forever breaking, never healing, never resolving. Look at our lives. How many times have we been hurt by someone and we stop wanting to be restored ourselves? We just want them to hurt a little bit. And when the apology does come, it's not good enough because I wanted you to grovel. I wanted you to beg. I wanted you to feel what I felt. When we live in this space, are we ever able to let anything go? Do you ever heal? Do you ever get to start over? Or do you sit there and you fantasize about maybe what it would feel like to get revenge? Or worse, you actually seek to do it. And the cycle continues and everyone loses. Slowly, over time, unforgiveness builds into resentment and the resentment becomes the very glasses through which we see our world. Bitterness, anger, hate. We can't even see ourselves clearly anymore because our glasses are clouded. We certainly can't see others. And I think this is why Jesus closes so harshly. He sees this kingdom forgiveness as that important to the story that he's telling about what God is doing in the world. Because in Jesus' story, our willingness to become more forgiving people ultimately decides whether we will be little Jesuses in the world or little Lamechs in the world. Will we become people who can't see our reality because the glasses of resentment make everything bitter? Will we be people who sit 
And we can never heal because we can't release our resentment. Will we become people who, just like all of human history, repeat the cycle of Lamech over and over and over again? Or do we become disciples who take seriously what the unforgiven servant could not understand, that our own imperfections have been forgiven much by God? That we have hurt people, we have transgressed, and we have been forgiven and in light of that, we should be forgiving. Jesus sees this as the central movement of a person who understands his gospel and wants to live in his kingdom because it is that important to how the story goes. Will we allow ourselves to heal and find freedom? Because when we do, it's like putting on glasses again and I can finally see my world clearly. And we've been closing these messages by talking about what it looks like to embody these abstract notions in our world as the church. And it's actually good news today. This one's incredibly practical. Jesus is actually very concrete on what it looks like to live this out as an action in our world, and it's called reconciliation. In this case, when Jesus talks about it, he is talking about the process of resolving conflict between injured parties so that they can return to the community. More than that, he talks about it in such a way that I think you'll see is countercultural, but also wildly misunderstood. And we need to get it right, and we need to make sure our teaching on forgiveness and reconciliation go together. So we're just going to start it starts in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and correct them when you are alone together. If they listen to you, then you've won over your brother or sister. But if they won't listen, take with you one or two others so that every word may be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. But if they still won't pay attention, report it to the church. If they won't pay attention, even to the church, treat them as you would a tax collector or Gentile. And again, this gets real practical, but we can very easily misunderstand what this is about when we don't mesh it with the parable. First, look at the verses. Is the word forgiveness in this text? That's because there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness, as we just learned, is about our hearts. It's our internal work as Jesus' disciples that we are all called to do to become more forgiving, to live in a world in which we can release wounds, heal from them, forgive others, and not drown in our resentment. Reconciliation, on the other hand, is a lived action by a community. It's not just an individual choice. It is something that the church is called to take very seriously, but it is different. And it's actually incredibly important that we understand the difference. I think the church has often treated them as the same. We tell people that your forgiving heart is tied to whether you reconcile a relationship with someone who hurt you. And when we do that, we actually become unbelievably unkind. We tell people to forgive and forget. Just stay in an abusive relationship. And that is not what Jesus envisions in this text. Jesus is not saying that if you don't reconcile that you can't forgive someone who wounded you. He is certainly not saying that if someone has died, you can never forgive them. 
forgiveness, individual, reconciliation, community. And I think this is important because when we get this right, we can get the process of healing and reconciliation right. So what is the first thing that you do when someone wrongs you in this text? You talk to them. You confront them. You address it directly. And I think this means a number of things. First of all, does forgiveness and reconciliation mean that you deny, bury, or ignore that someone has harmed you? Does forgiveness and reconciliation mean that you let the person keep on doing what they're doing? Absolutely not. So the first thing you do is you talk to them. You don't gossip to other people. You don't forgive and forget. You don't deny that you're wounded. You don't ignore it. You address it so the behavior can stop. Jesus is not asking you to sit in silence. And this is already countercultural, isn't it? Our culture says, you just sweep it under the rug. Don't talk about wounds. Don't talk about what's been done to you. That is not what Jesus calls you to do because that is not healthy conflict resolution. Jesus calls us to end the cycle of retaliation. We don't seek to revenge, seek revenge but we also don't ignore it and let it go on. Which gets to the first major difference. Forgiveness is about your own heart work. It's about the work that you do to let it go, to release, to find healing. Can you make anyone else do that? To admit that they were wrong, to change their hearts, and to seek reconciliation. No. You can't control what other people do. All you can control is whether you do the work of forgiveness and seek out that first step, and after that, it is not on you how they respond, which is crucial because that means that your forgiving heart is never tied to the response of the individual if they do not choose to meet you there. And the hope is that in this conversation, you come to see eye to eye, their eyes are open, they understand what they did, they admit that they were wrong, and they apologize, and the behavior stops. And it's a hard conversation. If you've ever been there, someone comes to you and they're like, you hurt me. And you're immediately like, no, I didn't. It's a process by which we can get past that if we are humble and willing and aware of our own forgiveness. What happens, though, if they don't? What happens if they don't listen, they don't apologize, they don't stop, they don't change? You bring someone else into the situation in Jesus' eyes. And then from this moment forth, it is an escalating involvement of the community. Jesus is clear. You bring one or two people into the situation, someone else in the relational world, a different perspective, someone you trust. And we do this for two reasons. The first one is that I might be wrong. Attribution bias. I might resent this person too much and I am misunderstanding the conflict taking place and their perspective wakes us both up and we can reconcile. More importantly, does Jesus ever envision you as being alone with this person ever again? From this moment forward, does Jesus say that you need to sit with them alone even though they haven't stopped their harm? No, Jesus says that your first priority is to get safe. You get safe, you get help, and you stop it before trying to reconcile, which is a big deal. We have to get this right because when the church doesn't, we send people into situations where they get hurt over and over again. And if they are not ready, you get out of there and you let other people do the work of working with that person. 
And from there, Jesus is clear, reconciliation is a community action. If they still persist, you involve more people in the community. You keep creating further and further distance and safety and boundaries. And you rely on your community to do the work that would be unsafe and unhealthy for you to do. Reconciliation is still sought. The church is not set, they can't just ignore the person. They can't try to just avoid them. They have to reconcile them. But hear me on this, that is the responsibility of the community and it is not yours as the injured party. It is now the community's job to protect the wounded person and to start working with the wounder on how to make it right. That's our responsibility in these situations. And if it continues, what does Jesus say that you do? You treat them as a tax collector and a Gentile. Once again, we misunderstand this text too often. Who did Jesus eat with? Tax collectors, Gentiles, and sinners. Jesus is not telling us to kick them to the curb, to beat them up, to become lamex to them. What Jesus did for tax collectors and Gentiles was he sought them out and he challenged them to follow him. Which means two things for us. The first is, does this mean that there are no consequences in these situations? Does this mean that the person without consequence just keeps doing it over again or over again? Does it mean that if it's something illegal, will you not resolve it? And does it mean that we allow people to perpetuate abuse? No. The consequence is that you may never be in a relationship with that person again. That relationship may never be what it was, and that is okay. Sometimes you might need to reconcile the relationship, but other times the wound is too deep. You can forgive them, you can let it go, but it does not mean you go back to being best friends again. The community works with them, but that is not your job, to reconcile them and to work on their hearts. The other thing it means is when we look at what it means to treat them as tax collectors and Gentiles, we need to understand that the conversation changes. Not the one you have with them, you are not talking to them. The one that the church has with them. The one that trusted people like your pastors, the staff of this church are willing to do in your stead. And the conversation becomes what Jesus did which is you challenge them to follow him. You go to the person and you say, there is something in your life that is preventing you from having healthy relationships with people around you and you are causing wounds. And we need to talk about discipleship. We need to talk about the unforgiving servant. We need to talk about the state of your heart because there's something that you're not seeing that's causing you to hurt people over and over again. And the goal of that is restoration. The goal of that is to bring them into the community to help them see clearly with new eyes and to heal. But I need to stress this so much. That is not the job of the injured person. We cannot get that wrong. We are the body of Christ, which means we carry each other's burdens and we do the work that other members of the body cannot, and that sometimes includes reconciliation. So we as disciples need to take seriously these instructions. We need to mesh them together. We need to realize that we need to become more forgiving people, but we also need to do reconciliation with wisdom. 
We need to seek it because that's what Christ's body does, but we need to do it in a Christ-like and healthy way. And it starts with what's at the root of unforgiveness. Self-awareness, self-honesty, and humility. So I'm going to close with some questions that we should take into the week. Where are we like the unforgiving servant? Sitting with unforgiveness as it drowns our life. Where do we need new glasses of forgiveness so we can see the world clearly again and find peace and healing in a true way? Where have we been forgiven much by God and by other people in ways that we did not reserve or deserve? And how does that change how you understand a conflict in your life going on right now? How does it change how you respond to that person? And where do we need to reconcile? Not in unhealthy ways, but in the Jesus way, with intentionality, sincerity, wisdom, discernment, and restoration. So I just challenge you to sit with that this week. Think about what it looks like in a real way. And let's become more forgiving people so we can break the cycles that bind our world.